Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we are delighted to come once again and to sit and to study your words of life. We thank you, Father, for the uh, promise that you've given to us via your words and that it has come to pass because of the finished work of Messiah Yeshua. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And for this reason, Lord, we know that our study of Torah is not just uh, an endeavor of the mind. We know that uh, your words are spirit and your words are life. And we know that because of the agency of the Ruach HaKodesh, that you are continuing to uh, draw us close to you, that you are continuing to raise us up and to, to make us ever aware of the need to bring the light of Messiah into the world around us. Lord, these are very dark and evil days, and uh, by faith we look forward to the soon return of your uh, coming to earth, Lord, to establish your kingdom, to destroy the wickedness, to put your enemies under your feet, and to establish your kingdom here on earth, and uh, to bring uh, the light of your truth to, um, to all mankind. Lord, we know that not everyone will make the decision to accept you. We know not everyone will will make the decision to to walk in the light of Messiah. Um, indeed, Lord, you said it well. You said it best that um, uh, the the broad is the road and wide wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many there are that go that way, but in comparison, Lord, narrow is the gate and and and. Um, Narrow is the way uh, that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Lord, we are thankful that we are counted among those who have found the narrow path, the narrow gate, and it is you who is leading us by the hand into the paths of righteousness. So we bless you, Father, for this time together, and we ask that you'll continue to raise us up as lights, as witness, as assault, as, um, as ambassadors for your kingdom and for your great name. And let us not be weary of well-doing, but um, uh, give us strength, Lord, that we will not faint and that we will continue to look look with faith uh, towards that day when you will uh, uh, come and take us unto your own. Uh, thank you for all of these wonderful truths. B'Shem Yeshua, Amen. Well, let's uh, date stamp our recording. Today is July 22nd for most of you. 2017. This is week 67 of Exegeting Galatians, and my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehilatu Nava in Thornton, Colorado. I'd love to have you 
Come and join us on a Shabbat uh, if you're in the area, if you're in the Denver area or the Thornton area, which is kind of north of Denver. Um, just look us up online at graftedin.com. You can get all the relevant details about congregational meeting times, which would include not only the um, not only the main sermon, but uh, the individual Sabbath classes and things that, that take place every Sabbath, okay? We're on week 67 of the commentary, and what we've done is we are working our way uh, just kind of paragraph by paragraph down through the written notes, which are a little shy of 200 pages. And if you'd like to follow along, you're certainly welcome to. The study is free for anyone who would like to come and join. If you'd like to join us live each uh, Saturday evening, we'll then just uh, get on your computer or smartphone and bring up Skype. You don't even have to have a Skype account. You can join as a guest. But what you will need to do is to join the live session. We meet every Saturday evening from about 7 p.m. to about 8 p.m., about 45 minutes to an hour or so. And uh, that's Central Standard Time, so make sure you adjust your clock. Also, um, the um, notes are made available uh, both to subscribed students as well as to anyone who wants to just download them for free from my website. Head on out to www.tatesatora.com and right along the very top there should be a menu section where you can click on the Galatians commentary and you'll find the notes there as well as links to all of the uh, live classes that I've recorded. Uh, about Usually about two days later or so after I've done the editing, I upload the audio recording both to my websites, which would be tatesatora.com and graftedin.com as well as upload them to the iTunes web store. And um, just if you've got iTunes on your uh, Mac or PC, just um, do a search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, or a search for uh, Galatians, and you should be able to find my podcast, okay? All right, without further ado, let's look at the liturgy. We're going to look at uh, a passage out of, the book of, um, out of the book of Isaiah for our Tanakh liturgy. And uh, then we're going to turn over to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, to look at the passage that we've been focusing on for the last few weeks, okay? So Isaiah, chapter 2, just the first three verses, 1 through 3, reads out of the ESV, quote, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, or Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's go back and look at the Hebrew of that same passage. I'm if, you've, if you're uh, in the live uh, study with me tonight, you'll see that I've got a different web page pulled up than what I normally have. I've got the uh, blueletterbible.org website pulled up, and I'm just going to use their interlinear tools here for this uh, part. So let's read the Hebrew of that same, uh, the same three verses. Verse 1 reads, Hadavar asher chaza Yeshiyahu ben Amos al Yehuda vi Yerushalayim. Verse 2. Verse 2. 
v'nacharu elive kol hagoim. Verse three, v'chalhu amim rabim v'amru lachu v'naale el har Adonai el Beit elohe Yaakov v'yorenu midrachayv v'nelcha b'orachotayv ki mitzion tetzei Torah. Okay. All right. And the reason I chose uh, these three verses are because we're going to be talking in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19, with this question from Paul, why then the law? And then he answers his own question in the same verse, uh, something about it being added because of transgressions until the seed, seed uh, which would come. Um, and there's a a popular teaching in Christianity today that uh, because Paul says the purpose of the law was added until that these two words added and the and until uh, create sort of bookends for the duration of the Torah, the duration of the law. The idea that um, the law was added at Sinai, but it would only continue until Calvary, until Christ died on the cross. And so thus Paul says it was added until the seed should come. Of course, we know the seed in the passage is the Messiah, so it's not hard to understand why the Christians, uh, the Christian commentaries, come up with this uh, particular interpretation that they do about the Torah having its limitations, particularly uh, coming to an end at at um, Calvary. And it's all a lot of it hinges squarely on this word "until" in the English, because that's how we normally read the verse with a, a kind of a marker of continuation up to a point. But let's read the Greek and see if we can make sense of. How, why would Paul teach that the law would come to an end at the, at Calvary, meaning at death of Christ, when Isaiah clearly prophesies of a coming day in the future, a day that has not yet happened yet, when many peoples will go up to the mountain of the Lord, um, to the house of the God of Jacob, to learn of his ways and walk in his paths, and then do what? For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And we just read the Hebrew there, the law there is the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If we were to have read verse 4, we find out that, that God himself will judge between the nations, decide disputes for many peoples, and, shall, and the peoples will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we know from Isaiah's prophecy that this is future, because these things haven't happened yet. These things haven't happened yet. So how can Isaiah prophesy of a time in the future when the word of the Lord, the Torah, will go forth in Zion, when... The law has been already brought into an end at Calvary per Paul's cryptic statement in Galatians 3.19, which we're about to read. Do you understand the dilemma? All right, let's go back and let's go and read Galatians now and see if we can make sense of this. Okay, Galatians 3, starting in verse... We're gonna, we, we, this is a big swath of scripture that we're reading. Um, we're going to start all the way in verse 15 and read all the way down through verse 22. So 3.15 to 22. And once again, I'm using ESV, and for those of you on the screen, you can see I've got um, Bible study tools pulled up again. I'm sorry, a blue letter Bible pulled up again. Let's start reading uh, Galatians 3.15. Quote, this is ESV. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17. 
This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Verse 18. <clears throat> For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added, because of transgressions until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And verse... Uh, let's see... Let's read up to verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, let's go back and entertain the Greek of 15 through 22. And uh, this time, as, of, as like last week, I'm going to use the Greek interlinear from studylight.org, which has an interlinear Bible, which is kind of nice. It's similar to the... Um, the uh, Bible tools that we're fond of using, the, the um, oh, what is it, the BibleHub.com that we're fond of using. And uh, in, indeed, the uh, I think the interlinear section is nearly identical to this, but the, the one big difference why I like this one is because of the layout. They In this page, they've, um, website, they have separated the verses in, 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 in sections that are easier for my students to follow along with, those who like to... Um, follow along on the screen, or those who uh, like to try and practice their Greek, this is a little easier to read. So, again, the page looks a little busy because of the Strong's number at the very top, followed immediately below that by the, um, uh, what do we call, an uh, transliterated Greek, and then immediately underneath that we've got the Greek script. This is, uh, again, the SBLGNT version of the Greek. And then we've got a wooden pony translation, the interlinear, the word-for-word -word English, even though it's kind of, uh, the syntax follows the Greek, so it looks kind of, you know, kind of backwards according to the way we're used to reading English. And then below that we've got the parts of speech, what I call the more morphological, uh, the morphology, where you see the, the, the verbs and the nouns, the prepositions, and then um, whatever um, tense and mood and voice the, that Greek shows up in. All right, so starting at verse 15 here, reading from right to left, I'm sorry, reading from left to right, uh, the Greek reads, Adelphoi, kata anthropon, lego hamas anthropu, kekurumenein diatekein udes athete e epidiatasetai. Verse 16 reads, Tode abraham erethesen hai epangeleai, kai to spermatiautu, ulege kai toi spermasin, hos epipalon al hos F. Henas Kaitospermatisuhas Estin Christos. Verse 17. Tuta de Lego diathekein proke curumenein. Hupa tu theu, ho metatetrocasia, kaitriacante ete, giganus namas, uk acroi esto catargesai, tain epangelian. Verse 18. Egar egnamu, he cleronamia, uketi ex epangelias, to de Abraham. Di Evangelias kekarstai hotheas. Verse 19, the one we're going to be looking at primarily tonight. Tion honamas, why then the law? And then he answers. Ton parabasion karen prosetete, achris 
hu elfe to spenamaho epangeltai de atages de angelon en cherai mesitu. Verse 20. Hode mesites henos, uk, esten hode theos hes esten. Verse 21. Ho namas kataton epangelion tu the u, megnoito. E gar edathe namas ho dunamena zopuesai antos, ek namu an en he decausune. And uh, verse 22, we'll stop here at verse, uh, no, I think we're going to stop, uh, yeah, I think we'll stop at 22. Alas una klesi nehe grafe ta panta hupa hamartian hine he apangelia, ek pistios Jesu Christu dolce tois pistusen. And yes, we'll stop there. Okay, let's go back and look at these, um, Look at this. As I mentioned uh, before I read the Greek, basically we're going to be examining verse 19 because that's where we're going to be trying to um, resolve the uh, dispute between traditional Christian interpretations of this verse and um, popular messianic views, or what you might call uh, Torah-positive views. In a word, we've got basically a contest. We've got the Christians on one side of the argument saying that basically Paul says that the Torah has a termination point proven by the word until, meaning it was added, its starting point, until, it was its ending point. So we've got bookends going on. The added part refers to uh, probably the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai, and the ending point would be the uh, death of Messiah on the cross when he said, it is finished. So for most Christians, we see here a clear description of the um, temporary nature of the Torah. It was not an everlasting covenant. It was not something that was to continue on past the uh, cross event. However, on the other side of the camp, we've got the Messianics, the Torah movement, uh, the Messianic Jews and Gentiles who are returning to a Hebraic lifestyle, those who would seek to continue in the um, the commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai, uh, those who would continue to say that the Torah has ongoing relevance, ongoing significance for believers, both Jew and Gentile, those who continue to follow after Sabbaths, kosher, uh, the dietary restrictions, of course, um, the festivals of Leviticus 23, um, these people continue to wear tzitzit on their uh, clothing. They continue to put mezuzot on their doors of their houses. They continue to, um, basically, for all intents and purposes, they continue to live like Jews. So it becomes very confusing to Christians who read Galatians 3.19, where Paul says the laws has this, this ending point, because it clearly says until. And if we use the English definition or understanding of that word until, then it, it seems to be that Paul's got a water, uh, uh, what do we say, a watertight and airtight uh, argument. That uh, it seems like the Christians have an airtight uh, argument that um, the, the law's done away with at this point in time. So why are these Messianic Jews and Gentiles, these these Torah communities, why are they continuing when Paul clearly says that the law has been uh, abolished at this point in time? All right, let's look at my commentary. Last week, we kind of just took a bite out of this. This is kind of a longer section, and yet it's not really a complicated section, in my opinion. What we did is we looked at um, 
a few differing versions in the English, first of all. This is my segue from last week. Uh, we looked at a few different English versions about this this verse to see if there was any difference in translation that would aid us in understanding why we have this sharp disagreement between these two camps. And in my opinion, the, the, the different versions don't really aid us in this word until. The only thing the different versions did was just show us that the, some of the clauses are out are in different orders. Particularly, um, uh, just I wanted to bring to your attention near the bottom of page 129 and top of page 130 that with all those versions that I show, essentially they all have the same order of the Greek. The clauses kind of show up in the same order so that we can kind of see some type of emphasis perhaps in the way that Paul ordered his, his, his clauses. The NASB is a notable exception where um, the clauses are not in the same order that the Greek shows up kind of woodenly. So uh, the ESV, the NLT, the YLT, the WEY, the CJB, they all have, and the, the, the KJB, of course, they all have a, 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 um, a version of the Greek that keeps the clauses uh, kind of in the order that they show up in the Greek so that we can kind of get an idea of which parts uh, might show up earlier in the, in the verse that, that p- could perhaps give us a clue as to which parts are more important to Paul, owing to an assumption that the, the, the clauses that show up first have the most emphasis in the Greek. I've heard that from many different commentators. Okay, so that was one of the reasons why we showed those. And then um, we also turned to a commentary from um, a very well-respected online Bible uh, website, which was um, BibleGateway.com. And we showed there the traditional Christian view that shows uh, that reflects the idea that the Torah has a temporal framework. Uh, it has these bookends because it was added until. And we see that those are basically the starting and the ending points of the law given. And then we turned to um, a commentary by Messianic Jewish author uh, David H. Stern, which for those of you who have his Bible and or his commentary, I happen to have both of them sitting right here, um, you'll you'll recall that David Stern is a... is part of the pro-Torah movement, the this movement to return to a Hebraic lifestyle, meaning as a Jew who has embraced his Messiah, Yeshua, David Stern has not followed in the footsteps of the traditional Christian um, perspective that teaches that the law has been done away with. Uh, meaning, if you read his version and you read his commentaries, you'll find that David Stern espouses to the ongoing validity of Torah for the lives of Jews and Gentiles, particularly for Messianic Jews, since he is a Messianic Jew. However, when we read his commentary, and we get to the part that talks about added until, his commentary basically said it was added until the coming of the seed about whom the promise had been made. And he says, from the time of Moshe until the coming of Yeshua, the Torah had a conscious raising role towards sin. The Torah still exists, is still in force in this capacity. And for those who have not yet come to trust in Yeshua, it still has his function. But for those who do trust in Yeshua and are faithful to him, the Torah need no longer serve in this capacity. So what Paul does, I'm sorry, what Stern does is rather than taking the entire Torah as a whole and bringing it to a conclusion at the death of Messiah at Calvary, like the traditional Christians do with this word until, David Stern seeks to uncover a part of the Torah that perhaps came to an end when the the individual person comes to accept Yeshua as Lord. And so, instead of bringing the entire Torah to the end, uh, David Stern basically says that there's a part of the Torah that uh, plays the role of, of um, making a sinner ever aware of sin and bringing it into his conscience and, and basically allowing sins to remain on the conscience of the individual 
until this person comes to faith in Messiah. Once this person, once an individual uh, matriculates to faith in Yeshua, then this person no longer has sins of the conscience. And um, for all his uh, uh, explaining that uh, Stern does, I actually have to agree with that role of Torah. I'm not sure if that's entirely what Paul meant when he talks about the Torah in this particular verse. But based on my understanding of the book of Hebrews, where the writer explains that um, uh, the, high priesthood, the, high, the high priesthood work of Yeshua um, does in fact do something that the earthly priests could not. That is, with his eternal sacrifice, he brings the worshiper to the goal. And part of the goal that's described in the book of Hebrews is cleansing the conscience, cleansing the conscience from sin, from dead works, so that we can live unto God with this new conscience, with this this um, new spirit, with this new heart. And so there's this this radical work done by the, the death and resurrection of Messiah, the, the, the finished work of Messiah, this radical work done on behalf of a believer, both in the heart and in the mind and in the spirit. I mean, it is radical. It's, it's, it's a completely new uh, man that is born from the old. The old man is dead. He's crucified with Christ. Amen. Amen. That's a very good place to say amen. And this new man that is raised up in his place, raised up just like Messiah was raised up, has a new mind. He has the mind of Christ. And this mind of Christ has been cleansed from dead works. His mind has been cleansed of sin. He no longer has sins of the conscience. And so I think that's what David Stern's uh, banking on when he talks about that. However, let's turn now to one more, actually um, two more translations, two more com- uh, uh, commentaries on this passage. Um, we're actually turn- we're going to use three more in my commentary. We're going to turn from to one... Uh, from David Guzik, David Guzik or Guzik, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name there, G-U-Z-I-K. Uh, I've been following his commentaries for years. I really appreciate his um, research and his, his uh, how thorough he is. However, he holds the traditional Christian position, but what he did in this particular verse, as we're going to find out, is he basically kind of combines what I, what I say is David Stern's version and the traditional Christian version when looking at these particular this particular passage. We're going to look at uh, Guzik's uh, commentary, then we're going to look at um, one from uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, I believe you pronounce it. Uh, he's a very uh, well-known preacher today as well, Sproul. And then we're going to finally look at um, uh, Tim Haig's commentary. Of course, those of you who follow along with me know that I, I favor Tim Haig because of his, also because of the way he's so thorough and um, he's very, uh, um, very uh, careful with the text, trying not to put his own reading into the text, but rather allow the text to speak for itself using the research. So we're going to look at those three. Let's start my commentary now near the middle of page 132 with this paragraph starting with, in a sort of combination. Okay. In a sort of combination of both Bible Gateway and Stern, David Gozuk. Christian commentator adds his contribution to the Galatian dilemma. I say dilemma because we got, again, the two camps disagreeing with one another over a single word, this word until. All right, what, here's uh, David Guzik. Um, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Part of the reason the law was given was to restrain the transgressions of men uh, through clearly revealing God's holy standard. God had to give us his standards so we would not destroy ourselves before the Messiah came. 
So that part is the part that I describe as traditional Christian view, where it talks about the law revealing sin, the law being a mirror, the law um, being a, uh, a restrainer. We're going to read more about these roles of the law here when we talk when we pull our quote from uh, from uh, R.C. Sproul here in a moment. Um, but Guzik also goes on to add, the law is also added because of transgressions in another way. That is, the law also excites man's innate rebellion through revealing a standard, showing us more clearly our need for salvation in Jesus. And that's the part I think that kind of uh, harks back to what Stern said a moment ago. Uh, the the law um, excites a man's innate rebellion. And remember, Stern talked about how that the law creates transgressions um, uh, the, the law not only was given to um, be a conscience-raising role. I, I apologize. I didn't read the entire part of Stern's um, commentary a moment ago. Stern mentions that the law brings sin to our conscience, and he says, but the law also... Um, let me just go back and look at it. I'm probably going to butcher it. Stern talks about how the, the law was added uh, to create transgressions, uh, meaning to in, or, uh, in order to contain and limit transgressions, in order to keep the Jewish people from becoming so intolerably sinful that they would become irredeemable, meaning to the point where they would destroy their witness of being the uh, family that would uh, carry along the promised seed of Messiah. Recall from Genesis 12 that God promised that, uh, to Abraham that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We know that this promise is a messianic promise because the only way that nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham would ultimately be through Yeshua himself, the ultimate seed of Abraham. And if the Jewish people throughout history became so intolerably sinful that they destroyed the, that God had to destroy them, then there would be no way for them to bring about the, the, the seed known as Messiah. So Stern's kind of hinting at that. But then Stern says, instead he thinks that the most primary meaning of this verse is that the law was um, the law? The Torah creates transgressions by containing commandments that people want to break, that rebellious humanity, um, human nature, perversely wants to break. So uh, that's part of what he um, uh, mentioned in his commentary, and then he goes to talk about how that the Torah has a conscious raising role towards sin, and it is within that context that I pulled in Guzik's translation where it talks about the law added to transgression because it excites a man's innate rebellion through revealing a standard. And that part about exciting a man's innate rebellion, that is kind of taunting man to come to the, the, to the law and violate it, right? The law uh, has this kind of strange, we can read about this in Romans chapter 7, has this kind of um, tempting quality to it, where to an unsaved man it it, it tempts man into sin, it entices man into sin, which is really kind of strange, this relationship between the law and the unbeliever, right? And, and you can read more about that if you read through Paul, where he talks about how that sin deceived me, right? It promised life, but then it deceived me, uh, and sin working through the law deceived me, and then it killed me, right? Romans chapter 7. And even within that role, those functions of the law, Yet Paul describes it as holy, righteous, and good in that same chapter, and that he himself uh, agrees with it after the inward part, and that with his mind he serves the law of God. So it's very interesting that he would describe the, his relationship to the law this way. So Guzik is trying to, trying, trying to make sense of that as well, and we can see that because Guzik says the law also excites man's innate rebellion 
through revealing a standard, showing us more clearly our need for salvation in Jesus. And the, the reference that, that Guzik makes is to Romans 7, 5 through 8. So, let me just pause and say that as we get started looking at this particular verse, why then the law it was added because of transgressions uh, until the seed should come, then as we're looking for a definition of why the law was added, there are so many places in the scriptures that we could turn to uh, to find our answer to this question. The Greek itself is too terse. It's too short. When Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. His Greek in, in Galatians is simply not long enough and, and explanatory enough uh, for us to get an idea of what he really means. Uh, in other words, I don't think it helps to go back and look at the, at the Greek itself per se. Um, we really have to use context from the book and then context from uh, Paul's other writings. And so turning to the book of Romans is not a bad idea. It is not a bad idea. Scripture should always be the best interpretation interpretation of scripture. So for the comments, Christian commentators to turn to Romans chapter 7 like, they, like they're doing is commendable. This indeed gives us an idea, an inside look into um, some of the functions of the law. But the thing that I think Christian commentators fail to do is to also take into account the whole of scripture as we just read, for instance, from the Old Testament, to borrow their words. In other words, uh, because Isaiah also talks about uh, some of the, uh, not necessarily the functions of the law, but he talked about part of the historical va value or historical timing of the law in that prophecy that we just read from chapter 2 of Isaiah. We can see then that this creates a dilemma, N not least of which there are other passages that I could read straight out of the Torah, where um, the, the, the law seems to hold this uh, everlasting value, this enduring value, this ongoing value. So, Let's see what we can make of this. Um, looking near the bottom of page 132 in my commentary, many Christians are likely to refer to John Calvin's popular three uses of the law in an effort to provide an answer to the question I've posed about how to best interpret Galatians 3.19. And exactly which of Calvin's three uses of the law should apply to Christians, right? So before we even read Calvin's three uses of the law, which are very common to most of us, um, let me just state right up front that I firmly believe that all three uses apply. Okay? I don't disagree with Calvin in this regard. Indeed, most well-meaning Christians also agree with my position on these three uses. And we're going to read them and we'll see that these are all three good uses and they are still ongoing relevant uses for the law. And so let's just study this for a moment. I believe Pastor R.C. Sproul... I think he pronounced his name Sproul. I don't think it's Sproul or Sproul. S-P-R-O-U-L, Sproul. R.C. Sproul, speaking on Calvin's commentary to these designations. I think uh, Pastor Sproul is representative of the views of mainstream Christianity. So let's give me a moment to quote him at length. This takes up the whole of page 133. Quote, Every Christian wrestles with the question, how does the Old Testament law relate to my life? Is the Old Testament law irrelevant to Christians, or is there some sense in which we are still bound by portions of it? As the heresy of antinomianism becomes ever more pervasive in our culture, the need to answer these questions grows increasingly urgent. The Reformation was founded on grace and not upon law, yet the law of God was not repudiated by the Reformers. John Calvin, for example, wrote what has become known as the threefold use of the law in order to show the importance of the law for the Christian life. Now, here we go. Here are Calvin's three uses. 
and uh, in my highlight in my commentary from uh, from uh, from uh, uh, Pastor Sproul, we've actually got them in bold. The first one, quote: "The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. On the one hand, the law of God reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us much about who God is. Perhaps more important, the law illumines human sinfulness." Augustine wrote, quote, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weaknesses under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. End quote from Augustine. The law highlights our weaknesses so that we might see the strength found in Christ. Here the law acts as a severe schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. All right, so that's the first purpose. The second purpose for the law, uh, Pastor Sproul goes on to say, is the restraint of evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It can, however, serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. Calvin says this purpose is, quote, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for recessitude, I'm sorry, for rectitude and justice, end quote. Sproul goes on to say, The law allows for a limited measure of justice on this earth until the last judgment is realized. And then, finally, uh, Sproul goes on to say, The third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. As born-again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father, whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law of God I'm sorry, let me read that sentence again. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, quote, If you love me, keep my commandments, end quote, uh, referring to John 14, 15. Sproul goes on to say, This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. Sproul goes on to continue, or conclude, By studying or meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends Him. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding upon us. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep His commandments. To love God is to obey His law. End quote. Now, I can tell you as a Messianic Jew, as someone who believes that the Torah has ongoing relevance in my life, I agree with 100% of everything that Dr. Sproul just said there. I don't think I can find any um, any disagreement with, with, everything, with anything. Because he didn't mention anything about um, doing away with the ceremonial part or anything like that. He, and he rightly describes... Uh, and reflects Calvin's three uses about it being a mirror, about it being a restrainer of evil, about it being uh, a standard to show us what is pleasing to God and things like that. And then also, I really like how Dr. Sproul, I think he's doctor, um, links um, uh, Jesus saying that if you love me, keep my commandments with the, with the fact that um, that as we love Yeshua and keep his commandments, this is also tantamount to us loving God and keeping God's commandments. Because indeed, to love Christ is to keep his commandments, and to love God is to obey his law. And I've heard sometimes people make a dichotomy. No, 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 we don't, we don't serve God in his commandments, we serve Christ in his. As if there's a separation between the two. 
Okay, so um, uh, Pastor Sproul does an excellent job here, and his commentary is highly recommended in this section on the law. Now, um, having said all of that, let's see if I can um, bring into context um, Sproul's comments here uh, in light of uh, what I understand um, Paul would, is really probably hinting at here. And what we're going we're gonna to do now real quick is I'm going to turn to... Um, uh, turn to the final commentary, which of course is uh, Haig, which, as many of you know, is my personal bias. And um, I have to admit at this point in time that I don't know how Haig comes to this conclusion from the textual analysis that we're going to read about. It, it seems to almost be a kind of a pleading, a special pleading. It almost appears to be a reading into the text of his position, which... I can understand where he comes to this this conclusion because of his understanding of the way the Tanakh describes the ongoing validity of the Torah, particularly in the passage that I just read from Isaiah, and how that we read about the Torah is written on the heart in Jeremiah 31 and, say, Ezekiel chapter 36 that I'm fond of reading. So, I can understand why he comes to this conclusion. Let me say that first and foremost. And I also agree with this conclusion, but I can also see how, how where the Christian commentators speaking on the other uses of the Torah, uh, could also have some validity when we're talking about those other uses of the law. As long as we don't come to the conclusion that the law as a whole has come to an end in Christ, I can agree with the position that talks about some of the other uses of the law, uh, you know, how it being a mirror, how it being a restrainer, how it being a, uh, something to reveal the standard of, of God, things like that. All right, so having said that, let's read my commentary near the bottom of page 133. Praise God that stalwart men of God, such as John Calvin, point us in the right direction in regards to the law of God. Indeed, I say, our opinions of Paul, our opinions of Paul and of his letters, should first and foremost, top of page 134, first and foremost be influenced by the raw data found within the totality of scriptures themselves. That's why I read Isaiah chapter 2. Since it only stands to reason that historically, when his letters were penned, right, when Paul was writing, you have to really keep this in mind when you're trying to figure out what Paul's saying. The Tanakh was the only inspired corpus of literature available to him. Thus, as we seek to get into the mind of Paul, it is reasonable to presume that Paul would also expect his readers, particularly his Jewish ones, to hold similar views of the Tanakh as he held to. So when Paul went back and read, say, Isaiah like I had, and Paul realizes that this is a future prophecy, because it talks about the people beating their weapons into plowshares, uh, beating in their weapons into um, um, you know, pruning hooks, beating their swords into plowshares and things like that. So they're destroying their weapons and not learning war anymore, and they're, and they're they're flocking to Jerusalem. The nations are flocking to the house of the Lord to learn of his ways and to walk in his paths. And then Isaiah says in no uncertain terms that the law will go forth from Zion. And we went back and looked at the Greek, to see, I'm sorry, the Hebrew, to see that the law there is not some strange, uh, and I'm using this word strange for emphasis, but it's not some strange messianic law of Christ, right? The royal law or the law of Christ that says that that only teaches to love your neighbor and love love God and love your neighbor, like the, like many Christian commentators want to have us believe. It's not something like that. 
taken at its normative face value when, when Isaiah says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law. He says the word Torah, which every Hebrew reader would have understood to be the Torah of Moshe. And that's how I take the verse as well. Out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, if this is a future prophecy, then how in the world could Paul say that the law had its end point in the Messiah? Unless perhaps I could say, I, I, I can hear my detractors answering my own question. I can hear Christian commentators saying, but Ariel, what Isaiah is prophesying is that the moral Torah will go forth from Zion. The moral Torah, right? The part that we're still bound to, the parts that teach us not to kill or to steal or not to commit adultery, to love our neighbors ourselves, and things like that. The, for out of Zion shall go forth the moral Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's basically what they would say. Because out of Zion, the, um, the ceremonial Torah shall come to an end. The ceremonial Torah shall come to an end. The civil Torah shall come to an end. Therefore, out of Zion, the moral Torah shall go forth. Basically, that's how Christian commentators are spinning the verse, right? That's the only way, the way I think they can reconcile Isaiah uh, 2, 3 with, um, with uh, uh, Galatians three nineteen and things like that. Okay, so uh, con- going back to my commentary, returning to our original examination of Galatians three nineteen, we can now begin to draw some concluding thoughts about this verse. Here's what I keep saying in my commentary. I believe that it's very true that the Torah functions in all three of Calvin's assigned roles, and that every mature Christian, both Jewish and Gentile, should affirm the ongoing relevance of the important functions described by Calvin and those like him. By the way, let me pause for a moment and tell you that um, uh, 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 Dr. Sproul's commentary that I read, if you'd like to go back and read the entire sermon, from footnote number 129 in my commentary, was taken from monergism.com. And there you'll find uh, some of his uh, uh, sermons, which are, uh, again, I don't agree with everything that Dr. Sproul teaches, but I think he's helpful in bringing these roles of the law into our um, purview and for particularly uh, reminding us of what Calvin said on the law here. All right, let's keep reading. So, given the immediate, however, given the immediate context of the following complementary verses, and in my commentary I bring to the um, bring to your attention that in footnote number 30, we have the presence of angels, right? Paul talks about that in 319. We've got the presence of angels and a mediator. And the, the idea that uh, we've got angels and a mediator, we have to remember that these are actually not pejorative marks against the Torah, like some, again, some Christian commentaries would have us believe. The bringing in of angels and a mediator are not pejorative marks against the Torah. They're not negative marks. They're not slams or they're not trying to downplay Torah as many Christian teachers presume. Rather, I say in my little footnote, in the um, first century Jewish worldview, these elements are signs that God regarded his Torah as high and lofty enough to warrant accompaniment by angels and to be safeguarded by the great Moshe, the one who delivered our people from Egypt. Understand what I'm saying there? So, for Paul to mention that the law was added until the coming of the seed to whom the, the coming of the seed who would come and it was accompanied by uh, angels and handed down through a mediator he's not trying to to talk about the lowly aspects of the torah when he brings in angels and a mediator he's actually trying to do the opposite 
Jewish literature, as well as the Torah itself, describes the accompaniment of the giving of the Torah at Sinai with the ten thousands of angels that showed up in the Song of Moses, for instance. And the psalmist talks about how that the angels accompanied the giving of the Torah and things like that, and the and and also the uh, the, the, the 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 mention of Moshe himself. Moshe is not a lowly figure in Jewish history. Quite the contrary, he's one of the highest, if not the highest, figures in Jewish history. So Paul wouldn't use these um, uh, details to try and slam Torah. He would actually use them to try to elevate Torah. So I think that starts to give us our context of what he's trying to talk about. It lets us know that perhaps this talk about Torah is not something that should be regarded as lightly, but something that should be highly regarded. So I say in my commentary, right in the middle of the paragraph, it seems more likely that reminding the readers of what history now designates as Calvin's three uses of the law, even though such designations would likely come later, is not the Apostles' intended meaning here. Okay? I don't think that Paul's trying to bring in the meaning of Romans when he talks about why was the law added. It was added because of transgressions. Um, Even though every commentator is doing his best, let's see what Hegg has to say. Uh, I think actually Hegg hits the nail on the head. But again, I I have to admit that I'm not exactly sure where Hegg gets his impetus for pulling in the uh, the meaning of the Greek the way he does. In fact, when I went back through time and time again to look at, I, I, un- I went through every single Greek commentary I have on this verse, and I scoured, um, I won't say hundreds of websites, but I scoured it probably a good 50 of them this week, uh, looking f- through lexicons, looking through biblical dictionaries on this word until, the Greek word achri, um, trying to figure out where... Uh, what might be a good uh, translation of this word. And let's see what Tim Hague has to say. Tim Head seems to demonstrate Paul's true positive intentions with his well-written explanation from his Galatian study quoted at length here. All right, let's read Hague. <clears throat> his comments will actually draw the section to a close. So basically, after I read Hague, um, we're done with this verse, and I'll just make some concluding marks, and then we'll close down our commentary for tonight, okay? All right, here's what Hague has to say. Quote, The language of our present verse would indicate that we should read it positively, not negatively. Why the Torah? It was added, that is, given, I'm sorry, it was given, that is, added to the revelation already given in the Abrahamic covenant, to reveal the divine method of dealing with transgressions, i.e., for the sake of transgressions, end quote. So, there's there's Haig's kind of paraphrase of the verse. And then Haig goes on to add this comment, Already prejudiced against the Torah, the typical Christian exegesis misses the fact that a great deal of the Torah centers upon the tabernacle slash temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. How were the covenant members to deal with the inevitable presence of sin in their personal and corporate lives? The Torah gives the answer. By repentance and acceptance of God's gracious gift of forgiveness through the payment of a just penalty exemplified in the sacrifice. It was the Torah that revealed in clear detail the method which God had provided for transgression, and it was this method, the sacrificial system and priesthood, that pointed to Messiah, the ultimate sacrifice and means of eternal forgiveness. Hegg goes on to say, 
Thus Paul adds, quote, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, end quote. In the Greek, this clause that I just read follows second immediately after, quote, it was added because of transgressions, end quote. So we've got these two clauses right back to back. The ESV has the order correct. This is why, why I read it from the ESV. We read, quote, why then the law? That's the first clause. Then we read, quote, it was added because of transgressions. There's a second clause. And then we had the third clause, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And the fourth clause, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And we're separating the clauses basically by either the prepositions or the conjunctions. All right, so that's the verse out of the ESV. Uh, Heg goes on to say, The Torah was given in order to reveal God's gracious manner of dealing with transgressions. By the way, the reason Heg brings out the order of the clauses is because Heg is fond of using the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and that version has the clauses out of order to the chagrin of Tim Heg. So instead, for this verse, Heg wants to remind us that the ESV has the correct order. And in fact, my when I went back and looked through all of the translations like I read uh, last week, most of them actually, most of the major English translations, David Stern included, have the clauses correct. Even the Tree of Life version, which is a kind of a new messianic version, also has the clauses in the correct order. And what I mean by correct order is as closely resembling the syntax of the Greek as we can. Not that we have to have to have the translation in the same syntax as the Greek in order to come to a proper interpretation or translation. It's it's entirely proper for the NASB in their defense to rearrange the order of the clauses in order to smooth out the Greek. So it's okay to do that. However, when we talk about the correct order, what we assume is that the, the way that Paul wrote them might um, betray some of the intended meaning behind the emphasis that Paul wanted us to have by perhaps putting clauses up front that we would read first so as to add kind of emphasis to the Greek. And again, I don't, I'm not sure exactly where Christian commentators get this notion that the order of the syntax of the Greek um, uh, definitely uh, indicates an emphasis. I, I've not read that myself personally, but I've heard many pastors talk about it, and Tim Hebb seems to be uh, hinting at it here. And so um, my knowledge of Greek is limited, and so I apologize for not knowing that firsthand. Okay, let's keep reading Tim Hegg's commentary here. He goes on to say, The Torah was given in order to reveal God's gracious manner of dealing with transgressions, i.e. through the death of an innocent substitute. Paul therefore immediately makes this point by adding, quote, Until the seed would come, end quote. Here as often, here as often the word until, achri, in the Greek, the Hebrew corresponding to the word ad, um, has the primary meaning of, quote, Now listen to Tim Hegg's um, Tim Hegg's uh, 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 definition here. And let's see. The brown driver in Griggs' uh, Gesenius lexicon is what Tim Hegg's quoting. So, I apologize when I said I'm not sure where Tim Hegg gets that. He actually uh, reveals his source. He says, quote, a, the meaning of Akri in the Greek is, quote, a marker of continuous extent of time up to a point until... End quote. And he quotes from the, B, uh, the, BDA, uh, the, the BDAG. Yes, the BDAG, the Brown Driver and Griggs uh, Gesenius lexicon there. And that's footnote number 131 in my uh, 
uh, commentary. So he wrote, he quotes that, and then he says, this is his final quote, Tim Hague says, the point is that the revelation of the Torah regarding how God provides redemption in the face of transgressions has its focal point in Yeshua. Once Yeshua had come and offered himself as God's eternal sacrifice, the ultimate revelation to which the sacrifice is pointed had been given. This is Paul's consistent perspective, that is, the Torah leads to Yeshua, uh, compare from Romans 10.4 and the continuing context of Romans 3, end quote. And um, uh, the entire quote from Tim Haig was uh, lifted, uh, footnote number 132 in my commentary from uh, Tim Haig, A Study of Galatians at TorahResource.com, page 121. Okay, so um, now let me explain what I mean real quick by not understanding where Tim Haig gets his impetus. Tim Haig actually recorded his commentary to Galatians, uh, which you can purchase on his website. It's, it's like, I think... 60 hours of recorded audio uh, to accompany the book that you can buy, which is commentary to the Galatians. And in the audio portion, he talks about, I seem to remember him saying something about, kind of, he, he kind of um, uh, paraphrases uh, this word, achri. he paraphrases, um, if you go back and look at Galatians 3.19, uh, which reads, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. He paraphrases it this way. Basically, if I remember what he said in his audio, he said, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, that is, to deal with transgressions until, that is, with a view towards the offering which would come to whom the promise had been made. And he, So he paraphrases this phrase, this term, until, which is the Greek word, achri, which we read about, right? Let me just pull up the Greek one more time. Uh, why then the law tiun honamas? Uh, the trans reading the wooden translation, the transgressions for the sake of it was added until that should have come the seed to whom the promise had been made, having been ordained through angels in the hand of a mediator. So why then the law tiun honamas? The transgressions ton parabasion for the sake of charin it was added prosetethe prosetethe. Until Achris, that who Elfe to sperma should have come the seed, sperma is seed, this is where we get our English word sperm, um, to whom promise has been made, ho epengeltai, having been ordained di ateges di angelon through angels in en cherai, the hand misitu of a mediator. So this Greek word Achris is until it's the preposition that uh, Haig is uh, highlighting. And he basically paraphrases it as with a view towards, with a view towards, meaning until doesn't mean um, up until and then ending, like the standard Christians commentators would say. Rather, Stern says that until has with a view towards. Now, um, every single lexicon and Bible dictionary, Strong's Concordance, etc., that I've consulted, which would include both the ones on my bookshelf as well as the ones online, None of them really use, none of them that I could tell referenced or made mention of with a view towards. They didn't use that, that language. All of them have like point of time, a marker of continuous, up until um, kind of this, they all have this kind of a temporal framework, uh, you know, with uh, a time uh, up until, as in something is moving until, and, and when it reaches the point that it was moving towards the goal, as it were, then it stops. 
So I can understand where Christians get this view. So what I would say is that from a textual perspective, just focusing on the Greek, seems like the Christians have the strongest um, weight of, of argument for their position that the law was added until, meaning <clears throat> that it moves along through the 1,500 years of Israel's history from Moshe until the coming and uh, crucifixion of Christ. That seems to be the natural way to understand the passage. However, here's where I think Hegg gives us the strongest, um, the strongest reason for rejecting that particular view from the Christian commentaries. And this is my challenge to your average Christian pastor. This is actually my challenge to your average um, Greek exegete who just uses his uh, Greek lexicons and concordances to get his definitions. Here's my challenge. Clearly throughout the Tanakh, as well as other passages in the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, we have um, parts of the Torah being referenced in an ongoing um, Excuse me, in an ongoing uh, role in the life of a believer. Calvin, of course, recognizes that, so Calvin wouldn't have allowed for the entire tour to be brought to an end at the, at the crucifixion of Christ, meaning Calvin's recognition of the threefold purposes, and in fact bringing us to realize that the highest purpose of the law is to reveal what pleases God. Um, Calvin shows us that the law for a believer has an ongoing relevance. Therefore, at face value, we can't take the standard tr Christian position that teaches that the law has been brought to an end in Christ in a totality. <clears throat> Sorry there, got something stuck in my throat there. <clears throat> but what we can do is continue to look at the other passages in the Apostolic Scriptures, particularly Matthew uh, 5, where Yeshua talks about, I did not come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it. And then he goes on to comment about what he means by fulfilling by talking about not one jot or tittle uh, passing from the law, and that those who uh, 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 teach and do the law are called great in the kingdom, yet those who don't teach and don't do the law are called least in the kingdom. And then he talks about our righteousness surpassing that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we know from Yeshua's teaching that there is an ongoing relevance for the law in the life of a believer. That's one place we could look at it. Paul then reminds us in Romans chapter 3, right around verses 30 and 31, um, verse 29, 30, and 31, uh, in that little section there, that we do not make void the law through faith, rather we establish the law. We, we set it on a firm footing. And so we know there's another place there that the law has an ongoing relevance for the life of a believer. He also mentioned earlier in, in chapter 2, uh, around verse 15, 16, somewhere, 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that section, that it's not the hearers of law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law. And we know that that refers to the doing of the law, meaning the, the, the obedience of faith that he mentioned earlier in Romans chapter 1, and then he also bookends in Romans chapter 15 about this, this bringing of the obedience of, of faith among the Gentiles. And so the obedience of faith of the law that he also references again in Romans around chapter 8, somewhere around verse 8, 19, 11, 12, the, the idea that believers can actually fulfill the law because it's been written on our heart, a.k.a. Jeremiah 31, 31, and Ezekiel 36, around verse 21, 22, something like that. Um, the idea that the law has been written on our heart because we have circumcised hearts, and the idea that we can fulfill the law because of our faith in Messiah, all of that speaks of the obedience of the law that the Gentiles have attained to and that the Jewish people who have rejected Yeshua still have yet to attain to. So my point is that 
um, as we begin to examine other places where Paul talks about the functions of the law in the life of both believers and unbelievers, we see that eventually that it is only parts of the law that are brought to an end as one comes to faith in the Messiah. It's not the totality of the law that is brought to an end. So at best, I think what we can say as we draw this verse of my commentary to a close, uh, Galatians 3.19, is that why then the law? It was added to bring us to a knowledge of Yeshua. Yes, we can say that for certain because we're going to read about that a little later on down here in the book of Galatians itself where Paul talk, describes the law as this schoolmaster, this pedagogue to, to bring us and carry us along to safeguard us until the moment that we reach the teacher of righteousness who is, of course, Yeshua. And then after we reach that conclusion as students, once we're brought to that goal, the Torah uh, drops off. It no longer plays that function in our lives as a personal follower of Messiah. We no longer need to look to the Torah to to reveal the Messiah in a salvific fashion. And Paul's going to def- definitely explain that that part of the Torah has a temporal function. It is a disposal of function in that sense. And I can agree, concur wholeheartedly with that function and role of the Torah. It is a very disposable part of the Torah. The Torah is only designed to bring us to that conclusion once in our life. And after that, we no longer have to use the Torah in that fashion. But after that, then the Torah has the other roles that Calvin talked about, how it, it is a mirror to still show us uh, what is right and what is wrong. It is a um, it is something that, that shows us how to be pleasing God and things like that. But when it comes to this particular verse, in this point in time in the verse, um, it's really difficult. I, I have to admit, it's really difficult to say for sure why Paul is bringing up this this uh, role of the Torah because he doesn't give us much more in the Greek. It's so 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 small. It's so truncated. It's so shortened. And so perhaps it's best to realize it in the immediate context uh, of its temporal nature, bringing us to Messiah. Or because he mentions because of transgressions, because he mentions the 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 the, the transgressions themselves, then perhaps Paul is actually. Uh, re, um, reminding us of something he's going to mention in Romans 10, verse 4, where he says, the, the, the Christ is the telos of the Torah. He's the goal of the Torah. He's not the end of the law, like so many English translations say. In fact, here's a little challenge for those of you who have access to online Bibles. Go up and look up as many English online Bibles as you can. Bring in a hundred of them. I don't, I don't, I don't mind. And you're going to find that basically only two that I'm that I'm aware of, only two, maybe three. I need to go check the scriptures. In fact, let me just grab it here because I've got the scriptures in hard print. Okay, pulled it off my shelf here. Let's turn to Romans 10, verse 4 out of the scriptures version because it tends to be a kind of a Hebraically oriented version as well. Romans 10, verse 4. All right, three. The, the, the scriptures does it as well. So we've got basically, as far as I can tell, three English versions that render rent Romans 10.4 as Christ being the goal of the Torah. This would be David Stern's CJB, which, for, which I think it quotes something like, for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. And then we have the Tree of Life version, which is also a Messianic version. It says Christ is the goal of the Torah. And then we have the scriptures version, which is, Put out of put it comes out of I think South Africa, uh, the scripture the Institute for Scripture Research, Research right, the ISR, 
uh, which I, if I remember is a South African version. Um, this version is also a Hebraic kind of roots version. And it says, and I just read it here a moment ago, it talks about Messiah being the goal of the Torah. So we got these three versions. But other than that, every other major English version, you know, your KJV, your NIV, your ESV, your NASB, your, 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 um, GWT, your, your, uh, um, every other, your WEB, all of them, every single one of them, uh, say that Christ is the end of the law. And the word end there is understood by them to mean Christ is the termination of the law, meaning the cessation of law, meaning Romans 10.4 and Galatians 3.19 are saying the same thing. They all they both describe the cessation, the terminal point of the law happening with the um, crucifixion of Christ. And yet those three versions, the TLV, the CJB, and the um, the scriptures, all three of those, are are the opposite of that. They say that no, the, Christ, the law didn't come to an end with the death of Christ. Rather, um, what Paul's trying to explain to us is when he uses the word telos in the Greek in Romans 10.4 being the end, and then this word achris uh, being translated until in uh, Galatians 3.19, is Paul's trying to say the same thing. That the focal point or the, the goal, the zenith of the Torah is the Messiah. And if and using that 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 logic and using that that hermeneutic uh, viewpoint, we can understand why Stern, I'm sorry, why uh, Haig reminds us that when we're talking about the sacrifices, we have to remember that the sacrifices actually only perform their role as they pointed towards the finished work of Yeshua. You really have to remind yourself about that. Otherwise, you come to some heretical notion that the sacrifice is actually afforded forgiveness of sins in and of themselves, but which we know they can't. We know that reading from the book of Hebrews that um, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But in order to read that verse in context, we have to understand that reading through the Tanakh, particularly through the passages that talk about atonement and, and a study of this word kafar, which is usually translated as covered from the Hebrew, a study of that word from the Hebrew text that use it in reference to the the the, the how the sacrifices perform their their role and function in the time period of the Tanakh reveals that what the sacrifices did is they performed two functions. Number one, they took away sin of the flesh, or we could describe this as um, ritual sin, or you could describe it as um, a ceremonial sin. So as the person approached the tabernacle with sins of the flesh, that is ceremonial sin or ritual sin uh, upon him, then by slaying a temporal animal, the temporal blood of an animal, temporal meaning mortal, meaning the blood was not was not everlasting like Yeshua's blood, but rather the mortal blood of a mortal animal actually afforded temporal cleansing in the sense that his sins were not just covered, but they were actually atoned for at the ritual level. And we find that explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about uh, if uh, sins that are cleansed of the, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Yeshua uh, cleanse sins of the conscience? So we know that the animals cleansed sins of the flesh, or temporal sins, or ritual sins or ceremonial sins, however you want to describe them, we know that they played that role. So in one sense, they did take away sin, but in another sense, 
they they could not take away sins of the conscience. Only Yeshua's blood could do that. And so the 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 as long as we understand the roles and functions of that part of the Torah, that part of the sacrifices, that part of sin cleansing, then we can begin to understand how Paul might be talking about that here in Romans three nineteen. Why was the law added? Because as people sinned in the presence of a holy God and in the presence of his holy sanctuary, they would need to have some sort of atoning device that would not just cover their sins like we sweep dirt underneath a carpet. They wouldn't just be hidden from God's view. Rather, they would actually be removed from God's view, but only in a ritual sense not removed from the conscience of an individual. And the proof that they're not removed permanently from the conscience is the fact that they are ongoing, that they have to appear year after year, even for those who brought them with, a, with, with the idea that they were going to cleanse their, cleanse their sins. You guys understand what I'm trying to say here? Moshe brought sacrifices year after year because the Torah commanded them. Every time he approached the sanctuary, the, 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 the tabernacle, he had to do exactly what he wrote about. He wasn't exempt from the law. He wasn't above the law. He had to, As he sinned, he had to bring the sacrifice. Everyone did. Paul did as well. We read about in the book of Acts, chapter, around verse 20, chapter 21, where he brings not a sin sacrifice, but he does bring a purifying sacrifice, right? He and the four men that were with him become purified so that there's, they, they can um, squelch the rumor that Paul is uh, trying to uproot Torah. Understand what I'm saying there? So, all in all, what we, what we can come to a conclusion is that I will talk more about this in weeks to come. I'm making this part of my commentary go a little bit longer because I want to really explain Galatians 3.19 as fully as I can. As best as I can understand, the sacrifices provided real-life forgiveness, but only on a ritual level. And so they didn't cleanse the conscience, else the worshiper would not have had to bring them year after year because his conscience would have been cleared of those sins. It's only until the worshiper has graduated to believe that Yeshua is the object to which the the um to which his faith points and the to which the animal sacrifices gained their ongoing uh, atoning power as well, then he not only had sins cleansed at the ritual level using the mortal blood of the animals, but he, most more importantly, in addition, had sins cleansed from the conscience because of the immortal blood of the sinless sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice of Yeshua. So basically, he lived in the best of both worlds. The person who lived in the time period of Tanakh who did believe in Yeshua, this would of course be Moshe, this would of course be uh, Faithful David, this would of course have been Paul and the other apostles who believed in Yeshua yet lived in a time period where the sacrifices were still ongoing. They could bring sin sacrifices with the understanding that the sacrifices afforded the ritual cleansing and the sacrifice of Yeshua afforded the eternal conscience cleansing, the soul cleansing. You see what I mean? And in that in that role, the, the, the sacrifices didn't compete with each other. The sacrifice of the animals and the sacrifice of Yeshua did not compete with one another. They complemented one another. So therefore, uh, someone with the knowledge of Paul, who studied the feet of Gamaliel, he of course, you know, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, he of course would have understood this deeper function of the, of the sacrifices, knowing that they had both a temporal aspect about them, yet they pointed to the eternal work of Messiah. And in the sense, in that sense, I think he can write that they, that the, why was the, why was the Torah added? It was added because of transgressions with a view towards the 
ultimate sacrifice that the animals would point towards in their providing their cleansing. Everyone following me so far? I, I think I've kind of elaborated on that enough for to to uh, challenge most traditional Christians' view on this subject and to also um, kind of bring to light more why Paul would say something like this. Um, and I, I obviously Tim Hague is picking up on that. David Stern, I believe, should be picking up on that. I'm not sure if he did or didn't, because he didn't seem to speak on that directly in his commentary. But being a Messianic Jew, I'm sure if I had a conversation with him, he would probably use similar language. Nevertheless, let's draw our commentary to a close, and um, uh, we'll meet again next week, um, where we're going to turn now, if you look at my commentary, we're near the top of page 135, we're going to start looking at uh, verse 321. We're going to skip, actually, verse 20, um, because I didn't think it was a point of strong difference between Messianics and Christians. Instead, we're going to jump right down to the 321, which reads, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Okay, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to sit with the students once again and to study and to soak up your spirit. Indeed, Lord, my purpose of bringing these studies to the students and to those who are listening by way of, of a podcast and iTunes and things like that is to to highlight the work and the name of Messiah, to, to uplift the name of Yeshua, to bring glory and praise to his name, not so that we can simply put more knowledge and information into our heads and, and, and swell our brains with all of this knowledge. That's, that's not the reason why I, I wrote the commentary that I wrote, and that's not the reason why I'm uh, taking the time to pour through the audio notes the way we're doing. Lord, I, I trust that the students will um, come to the same conclusion as me, that the Word of God is our blueprint for living. It is our instructions for righteous living. It is what teaches us how to be pleasing to God. It is what gives us uh, our definition of what is not not only holiness, but what is sin. For the knowledge of sin is, is through the Torah. We know what pleases you and what displeases you. And so, Lord, as we continue to walk in your way uh, by the power of the Spirit, we realize that um, uh, you are ever giving us an increased desire uh, as we grow in holiness, as we uh, grow in sanctification, as we continue to to turn away from sin, as we continue to sin less and less, as we um, grow uh, uh, moment by moment, uh, seeking to be more and more like Messiah until that one day when we can be uh, perfect, we, we can put on um, the, the perfection of Messiah and, and be cleansed and free from this body of death that, Rome, that uh, Paul talks about in Romans uh, chapter 7. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, that you are uh, opening our hearts and our minds uh, to do your will, to do your will, to declare your truth, to walk in your ways, and to uh, fall in love with Messiah over and over again as we study the pages of your word. Bless us as we go along. Continue to forgive us as we make mistakes. Continue to lift us up and to protect us as families. Continue to give us opportunities to witness to our friends and family about Yeshua. Let us not be um, weary in well-doing. Um, let us continue to uh, hold to the hope and the anchor that is our Messiah in these in these desperate times, Lord, in these stressful times, in these confusing times uh, that are all around us. Um, we know that uh, the Messiah is our lighthouse, and we will look to him as we chart our ship through these rough waters. Uh, we know that Yeshua will not uh, leave us nor forsake us, and so it is to him that we look. 
Thank you for all of these wonderful things, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>